Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the CityWire Ratings Radar Show. After our special guest video appearance last week, we're back to the old gang. Angus, Nisha and Frank are joining me today. Very nice to see them again as I can through the medium of Riverside.fm. Quick plug there. Uh, continuing our series on eminent fund managers uh, who are high up the uh, CityWire ratings and rankings. And we're going to start today with you, Frank, because you are picking uh, an environmental fund manager, particularly apt at this time when we're thinking so much about energy security and the transition to clean sources. A big UK paper out today about how we're going to achieve that by 2030 or 2050. So uh, take it away, Frank. Yeah, you're right. It's, uh, it's it's super topical. I'm actually going to talk about, as you say, environmental fund or an ecology fund, uh, as they're probably more broadly known. Uh, as a refresher, ecology funds are those that invest in companies which positively benefit the environment. You might think of this as the, you know, the entire green economy. That makes it a pretty broad space. You've got waste, water, energy efficiency, alternative energy, as just mentioned, sustainable agriculture and sustainable transport. Um, while its broadness means it's, it's less focused than just opting for one of those themes, it has the benefit uh, of increasing the pool of companies you can invest in, in turn liquidity, uh, and hopefully some much needed diversity as a result. Obviously, that's strategy dependent and lower volatility, which, which comes with that diversity. Um, also, because these buckets are so broad, you do get some tech companies in here, most notably uh, semiconductor manufacturers. Much of our resource efficiency depends on microchips. Uh, however, you are unlikely to get big tech in these funds. Because they they have social problems, regulatory problems on the horizon? I think, yeah, I think that's, that's probably a part of it, but also they're not intrinsically involved in the in the environment you know that you need microchips as a core part of a lot of these efficiencies um, but the fund that i'm going to look at is from morova uh, it's the 3.1 billion dollar morova europe environmental equity fund run by suzanne senelart or senelar back to pronouncing names badly apologies a uh, little background on morova it's an atixis boutique and this is what morova are all about completely committed to sustainable investing. I believe, I'm not certain, but every one of their funds is Article 9 in the SFDR regulation. I think also they may be one of only a few asset managers to achieve that feat. Nisha will know better than I do, I think, on that front. Um, I like this fund's focus on the European market. You know, Europe is the, the sort of the nexus, the most forward thinking of regions when it comes to climate related issues, and that makes it a manageable universe of stocks given also that so much of this stuff is local, particularly in water, waste, utilities, companies. They tend to be focused on one country or a region of a country. So being based in Europe gives them an edge. It's easier to grapple with the, the local dynamics. Um, also in Europe, you know, as you spoke about, fresh onus on resource efficiency and light of the situation in Ukraine. That's not to say that you know, these companies are provincial backwaters. Uh, the bulk of the portfolio is firmly large cap, with global reach. And again, that's one of the, the benefits of having this larger pool of investments to, to pick from. The portfolio has done very well since the start of the pandemic. Don't get me wrong, it was trotting along nicely pre-pandemic, but its mix of companies really took off. It had 
all of those semiconductor names. It had the darlings of European clean energy, Vestas, Orsted. We don't hear those names as often anymore, but they're you know still featuring prominently. Uh, it's still heavily invested in those companies. It's got a combined 8% in semiconductor names, ASML and Infineon, the second and seventh largest holdings respectively. Uh, and given the current guidance on supply issues in this area, um, they're anticipated to last for, for most of the year. Those prices seem pretty well supported, particularly when you consider they're already a third off their peak valuations from last year. And Vestas is also a healthy sort of 3.7% of the fund. That too is, is, is a third down from its peak, uh, although it has risen 30% since the conflict started and European nations advanced their timetable of clean power generation. Interesting stuff. So tell us about her particular style and how she scored so much success just looking at her fact sheet, I mean, she ran away with the, with all the trophies in 2020. Uh, 2021, not so great. Yeah, I mean, for many years, these funds have been a bit of a curiosity and something only the big thematic allocators put, put money in. But 2020 was the real awakening. They were no longer kind of boring, steady funds. This fund has gone from 800 million to 3.1 billion in three years. You know, you might... You might question whether or not this is the right vintage to buy in. You know, prior to that, as I said, they were pretty dull. Um, but yeah, I think <laughs> this, the, the long-term picture here is is so is so compelling. Um, and unlike other areas like China and clean energy, these ecology funds are taking in net new money every single month. They're always in the top ten inflow leaderboard, you know, irrespective of what's going on in the backdrop of the market. You know, people have really woken up and smelled the bacon. Or I guess uh, that would be probably be the, the vegan substitute. The plant bacon. substitute bacon. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, and it's now a category that's that's over a hundred billion uh, in assets. Another company that's got, I think, it's quite interesting is is Saint Gobain, the French uh, company that specialises in lightweight sustainable construction, building materials, building efficiency. There are big strides being made in this area, and that's one of the leaders in it. Uh, it's four point six percent of the fund, the biggest position. Uh, I think. Um, it's a very it's a very compelling area now and uh, whether or not you think it's inflated short term the long term picture and the drivers behind this um, they're not going to go away i realize right. i didn't ask your question Nisha, about how, could... how, how she sort of selects yes um i think i think she uh, sort of go, goes with that whole overarching morova sort of strategy they stick to the sustainable development goals you know are these companies uh that's across all of their investments are these companies furthering um those goals <laughs> and uh, and uh, ultimately are they attractively valued nisha so this is a sdfr category nine yeah now your one of your bugbears is how companies are self-certifying this category eight uh, yeah. without really living up to the job um, yeah, is Category so, uh, 9 any better? In terms it is. Of... It is definitely because um, you're held more accountable for what you have in this fund, in these types of funds. And also um, there are the impact implications of it. It's not just, you know, measuring having something ESG related within the fund. There has to be an objective, for example, reducing um, carbon emissions, etc. You know, there has to be some kind of scientific, you know, measurable thing behind this and this is what Morova are doing. I did have um, the advantage of speaking to the head of sustainability research, Mathilde Defoe at Morova, um, to get an, a bit of an understanding of um, you know their processes and um, how they 
you know, are categorizing their funds. And yes, as Frank mentioned, most of them are in Article 9. And it is about engagement, um, voting, um, and also having that scientific-led, you know, actual stats behind how their funds are making an impact in the world. Um, so, I mean, we've talked in the past about, you know, the EU taxonomy, the green taxonomy, which is helping, you know, with these regulatory um, things that you have to do with these Article 9 funds. It is helping a lot, you know, to get this these kind of funds on track and making them accountable. So I think if they are Article 9, they are doing good and you can, you know, they have to produce evidence for it. Article 8, as you mentioned, Richard, yes, that's my bugbear. You know, you can invert that is just overarching. Yes, it has a bit of ESG in it. But Article 9 is a different kettle of fish completely. And I think this is more important now than ever because the latest IPCC report, which is out, and if flows are not going towards this area, I'll be surprised because it's a wake-up call for a lot of people. And it was a very sobering report. I mean, on the current tra- trajectory that we're on, you know, it's catastrophic if, we can, if we're reaching three degrees or over. That is the trajectory we're on at the moment. And the report says that, you know, if you don't want to you know, damage people, ecosystems, it needs to be 1.5. And we're nowhere near that at the moment. And we've seen this rush at the moment to dirty energy you know, this year, especially coming out of the Russia-Ukraine crisis, etc. But, you know, having dirty energy back on the agenda in some cases, it's just put slightly pushed back cleaner energy going forward. But it's not the end of it. It's still um, hopefully powering ahead. Angus, do your, do your selectors feel more at home with Article 9 funds than, uh, as, as Nisha says, the, the slightly dubious procedure for calling yourself an article 8 fund i'm not sure selectors fund selectors think that way richard to be honest they they you know if you think about the role of a fund selector it's to find the best fund or manager within a certain category as defined by the asset allocation i I don't think they would worry about whether they felt more at home with one category or another Uh, i think they would just look at things on their merits i think the i think the challenge for asset managers is that fund selectors might start to, in fact, are, are very likely to start devising their own uh, criteria for rating, you know, ESG funds or sustainable sustainable funds, because the whole sort of six, eight, nine thing is, is so muddy, really. Um, I did uh, just a couple of things that occurred to me while Nisha and Frank were talking. I read an article on one of CityWire's websites, I think it was the Selector website, based on a conversation with Morningstar's head of ESG research, who said that putting uh, terms like ESG or sustainability in a fund name does still have a powerful effect on investors, simply because if you don't label a fund ESG or sustainable or something similar, um, everyone thinks that it can't be sustainable and so so they're less likely to look at it so it's much more it's much more about what gets left out rather than what gets included um the also also anything that's labeled sustainable esg uh, investors uh, this is anecdotal of course but investors seem to expect a lot more disclosure from a fund that calls itself sustainable than they would from one that doesn't which creates a new layer of uh, of work for the asset manager uh, i wanted to um, for a question at Frank, though, actually, I was reading a report yesterday or the day before. It was produced by Elgin, the UK asset manager, uh, with BHP, the mining company, it has to be said. 
Uh, and they were saying, they'd concluded that more investment was needed in mining uh, in order to meet climate goals because uh, so many of the resources that miners produce, copper, nickel, cobalt, are all things that will be needed in energy transition. And so moving away from those things uh, was counterproductive. Uh, and without some kind of growing and, and responsibly run mining sector, uh, there couldn't be an energy transition. But, but then allied to that, you have the fact that, I think, Frank, you said this fund holds semiconductors. I'm not sure how that is an environmental investment. Uh, but what all of that combined, again, you said this is a fund that some years ago would have been seen as a curiosity, and you talked about the growth in assets. Richard highlighted the, um, the performance falling away slightly in 2021, I think. So I just really wondered whether there's a correlation between asset size and performance in these types of funds, because you are getting a more and more restricted investment universe. You know, things like the SFDR taxonomy, the kind of, you know, the cancellation of mining stocks, et cetera, et cetera, means that if you are in this space, you have a narrower and narrower investable universe and more and more assets coming into these funds. Is, is that not a challenge for these, these types of managers? Definitely. I don't think just just firstly, this is not the kind of fund that's going to, going to pick up a mining stock uh, regardless. It has some sort of slightly tangential stuff that you might think, oh, why is that there like chemicals companies? But these are chemicals companies that are that are doing good. Um, so the, the question of whether or not they're having to broaden their investment universe in order to cater to the volume of assets they now have. I do think that we've seen that across the ecology space um, in the past three years as assets have ballooned. But not necessarily in this fund. I mean, the makeup of what this fund owns is very consistent with what it was pre-pandemic. So going in, like I said, it had all the same kind of companies and it always stated that it felt that semiconductors were crucial to to the energy efficiency play particularly, but just all resource efficiency. You know, that that's a sort of received wisdom on on that front. Um, I don't. I do think there are question marks over when some of these funds become too broad. But it's not like an AI or robotics fund that ends up just looking like a quasi tech fund, um, with you know a few of the big tech names excluded. Most of let's face it, big tech do, do all, you know do some level of AI. So it's, it, that's a bit flimsier. This is this is a bit more solid. This environmental markets play um, than others. Mm. And, and Nisha, what do you think about the naming part of it? You know, the, the Morningstar argument that you need to have something like ESG or sustainability in the fund name to get it looked at. Uh, you've, I know you've done quite a bit of work on this, on this whole naming issue. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, she's right um, completely, because even when I look at um, or analysing these funds, the key terms I key in are ESG. Does it have sustainable in the name? Does it have impact in the name? This is before the Article 9s or 8s of this world came in. Not all data systems will have that information in there. So what are fund selectors doing? They put those key terms in and that what's, that's then they look at that batch. So I don't blame um, the fund management groups for naming these funds with sustainable ESG to make it more you know that it is one of those funds because at the end of the day when you're searching for these funds that's what comes up. You know, um, so in that sense, um, it's good, but it does, as Richard was saying, it should make them more accountable as well, mm. because you do expect more from these funds. And if it's doing ESG, you want to know that it's doing what it says on the tin. Yeah, and it's but it does make it difficult. I mean, you could you know, further to your Elgin report that you talked about, Angus. You you know that might 
they might create a fund that invests in miners that are doing a producing the transition minerals that we minerals and metals that we need and be getting better and cleaner at their mining and then yeah. you've got something like this which isn't going to touch a miner with a very long barge pole so yeah and i think um just to um on this point as well that's why it's so important to do the research on these funds as well just because it's in the name it doesn't mean that it might align to what the investment objective of your client or you know what you're looking for for example it could be energy transition now that is completely different from somebody who's investing in the clean energy and just in clean energy but if you're helping for example the exxon mobiles of this world the bps of this world for the transitioning they're not going to stop producing dirty energy just you know that's not sustainable it's not sustainable for their business they have to have that transition to be able to do that so they're going to still continue their operations but slowly transition and i think that's an important distinction to make that investments still need to go even into these com- companies to help this transitioning process otherwise what do we do they'll you know the dirty energy is still going to be produced um it's a it's not viable on a business level not to do that for example on on, on the kind of names that this that this fund has in i think because it can get so broad, I think anyone considering investing in it does need to be conscious of that and does need to think, okay, is there is there overlap? Have I got a heavy chunk in European semiconductors already? Do I do I want to be doubling down? And it might seem like that, and that's something to be to consider. But like I said, I think there's going to be less overlap. You know, some of these markets are small. You know, sub trillion dollar you know the the waste or water, and adding them all together creates a sort of broader pie. But it is still it's a large cap play, this this fund, mostly. You're not just fishing for the tiddlers, if that's an expression. We've had fishing and bacon in here today. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know what that tells us. Maybe we just like food-based cliches. Sorry, Angus. Probably, probably need, to, need to wise up about our sustainable development goals. <laughs> yeah. I was going to go back to your question, Richard, about what fund selectors feel about this or want want in this area you know in my experience fund selectors want to be sure they're comparing like with like so that's one thing that's important and that's why the definitions although sometimes we may seem to be getting a little bit into semantics the definitions are important so they want to they want to be sure they're comparing like with like and very closely linked to that they want to be sure that something does what it says on the tin uh, to Frank's point, and this this fund certainly sounds like one that is clear about what it's trying to do and is and is clearly clearly appears to be doing what it, it, it says it's trying to do. So those are really important. Uh, and the other thing is how a fund or strategy fits into the overall portfolio. That's a really important part of the mix. So uh, uh, again, I, I guess that's why I, I'm interested in that issue of a narrow and narrow investable universe, because what you don't want in any portfolio is, is a high degree of overlap and concentration risk. You know, and somebody mentioned Orsted, and we've all talked about Orsted in the past, where there's a, a stock that was very uh, highly regarded by many environmental investors, and hence everybody wanted a piece of it. It was in every single sustainable portfolio you, you came across, uh, which, okay, maybe it deserved to be there, and maybe it's the, the investment case was strong, but um, does create you know, a, a, a level of concentration risk that, that I think people aren't always comfortable with. And, and, and want to be aware of, at least. And that's a wrap for this episode, which is actually the final edition of the CityWire Ratings Radar Show. After two years and 42 episodes, it's time for a change. 
So on behalf of Angus, Nisha, Frank and the production team, may I thank you all for tuning in over the last two years. There are still many CityWire podcasts to listen to. I would particularly recommend Mistakes Were Made. Once again, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Thank you.